following program has the potential, dare I say, probability to give offense. It's Friday, October 2nd, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Now, I'd like to talk to you guys because I think I know what you're thinking, what you must be thinking, and it's what I'm thinking that the president must recover, that he simply cannot, must not perish from this earth per the words of the other president who he acknowledged possibly did more for African-Americans than he. This is a time of great uncertainty. You're asking, how will we go on? How can we recover if he doesn't? What will happen next? Well, in these times, I hearken back to words that Donald Trump himself once said, it's not much worse than the flu. Remember that? Let that be your rock in these uncertain times. And also, let's remember when he said, it's all going to go away one day. All go away. He said that. We got to remember. I know you're also asking, of all the people to have gotten it, how could it be him? I know. I wonder too. This is a guy who wore masks at least three times. He had a carefully considered mask strategy deploying mask prudence. I think it's a great thing to wear a mask. I've never been against masks, but I do believe they have a a time and a place. He was well informed about when masks were needed. You've been all tested. I've been tested. Oftentimes I'll be with people that are fully tested. I've been tested. In theory, you don't need the mask. He was always careful to be discreet with his mask wearing, never wanting to engage in any kind of indulgent, overindulgent, unnecessary maskedness. Well, I did wear, I had one on before. I wore one in this back area, but I didn't want to give the press the pleasure of seeing it. But no, where I had it in the back area, I did put a uh, mask on. He was keen not to send the wrong over-masking message because, as he warned us time and time again, a piece of cloth with strings that go around your ears that even children wear for hours on end, they're pretty precise and delicate instruments. Masks have problems, too, and I talked about The masks have to be handled very gently, very carefully. And he was always sure not to let any members of the press make wildly inflated claims about this highly suspect technology. No, they may be effective. Yes, exactly. It's hard to even fathom how someone with such a deep understanding of prevention and a commitment to implementation of viral containment methods would somehow get the virus. I think there's a lot of problems with masks. And so what are we doing now? I guess we're denying where bargaining. We're shouting why to the heavens at the top of our lungs indoors, standing next to people who we just met. I have no answers. It is perhaps God's will. I would like to bring in Father John Jenkins, a holy man. Of course, I can't. He's the president of Notre Dame. He somehow came down with the coronavirus after attending the Amy Coney Barrett rollout without a mask and while shaking lots of hands, as most of the people there did too. The president, who is in great shape, with a great body, did all the right things. He followed, to a T, the CDC guidelines. And even if he at first failed to adhere to the guidelines, he changed the guidelines. 
So let us not forget that the president has great genes and is strong. He is so strong. He says things strongly by using the word strongly. So he's strong. And he's also not afraid to belittle the weak, which is a sign of strength. And let's also remember that the deadliness of coronavirus seems a lot worse if you take out the blue states. Again, those are his words. And remember, the president has changed his residence from a blue state, New York, to a recent red state, Florida. So, in fact, he took himself out of the blue state. Smart. So, let's summarize what we know. The virus is a mostly blue state phenomena, which will go away, which can be combated in certain very specific times in very limited ways with a mask, which might hurt more than it helps. So the president's probably in the clear. And if you want to be crassly political about this, if you want to be almost unsentimentally self-interested, and I know, I know that's not Donald Trump's way, but if you allow me this indulgence, I think it could help him politically because you'll remember that ridiculous thing that Joe Biden said at the last debate. Did you see one of the last big rallies he had and a reporter came up to him to ask him a question. He said, no, 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 stand back, put on your mask, put on a mask. Have you been tested? Huh, that didn't prove to be true. That's going to be an embarrassment. So there is an upside after all. And here's another one. And it's this. I don't know if it's an upside, but it's a a means of condolence. If COVID does, God forbid, take Donald Trump from us, there is something that he accomplished that no one can ever take away. And I think you know what it is. It's that he died before having to pay back the IRS that $100 million. On the show today, a little spiel about the weightiness of Trump's predicament. But first, as I speak to you today, a very late 723 taping time on the East Coast, the word from the White House is Vice President Pence not taking control, the president's still in charge. How long will that last? And what might happen next? David Priest is a former employee of the State Department and the CIA, who is the author of How to Get Rid of a President, Batsoup did not come up in that book, but David knows all about continuity of government and what to do when a president is incapacitated or worse. Joining me now is David Priest, who is the chief operating officer of the Lawfare Institute. More to our point, he is a uh, former CIA officer and is the author of a couple books. One of them is called How to Get Rid of a President. Let's just put a pin on that idea, shall we? Although there have been many presidents who have been sick. David wrote about them in his book. Thanks for joining me again. You betcha. And I, I got to say, Mike, when I wrote that, How to Get Rid of a President, about all the ways presidents have left office or come close to it, there was a whole lot more attention to the issues of impeachment, to the issues of Could his own staff think he is unsuitable for office and use the 25th Amendment? Those issues were at the forefront. I did include a couple of chapters on disability and on presidential death thinking, well, presidents have left office because they've died. We've had had eight of them do that. So that is a way presidents leave office. But I certainly didn't think it would be coming up like this. Right. So let's talk about COG. Were you at all, which is the continuity of government, What kind of uh, cog in the cog were you (laughs) at? A very small piece of it, because uh, continuity of government efforts, at least in the national security realm, are vast. Uh, There are facilities set up to handle physical issues. There are redundancies built in to handle electronic or other issues. 
Most of those details are highly classified, but there are basically plans and operating procedures for all kinds of scenarios. And I was involved in, in some of those when I was at CIA and to a lesser degree when I was at the State Department. Not a single one of those that I was involved in had the issue of what happens if, let's say, the president catches a highly contagious disease and is quarantined in one or two rooms of the residence of the White House. That wasn't a specific scenario I ever dealt with. No. What would what problems would that bring up beyond just, you know, Barrett in the background making noise on the Zoom meeting? Well, it, it brings up a, a couple of things, which is the president's normal patterns for doing business. And this is any president, Mike, not just this president involves a lot of face-to-face meetings. You're meeting face-to-face with with staff, with members from the Situation Room, with uh, executives from across the government. You're meeting with members of Congress. In his case, now you're going to rallies and you're doing a lot of other face-to-face. Now, some of that you can just suspend for a day or two and you can substitute in a phone call. Um, In the president's case, he can send tweets instead of uh, saying hi in person. But that can only go on so long because there are some things that have to be done. You have to sign executive orders legislation. Now, that could be done through pushing a paper under the door and sanitizing it in in the extreme case. You could do something like that. But there are a whole lot of things that depend on the personality of the president. And I don't know how long this president will want to sit in a room alone and not actually have face-to-face time as he's been used to for some seven decades. Right. Or recognize that he is physically not up to certain, even if not face-to-face, you know, collecting and signing that executive order or thinking about whether he wants to sign that executive order. You know, at a certain point, the president makes determinations about his own mental state. And everything we know is that this president tends to default to an impression of his own mental state as being quite vigorous. And historically, even presidents without some of the issues that Donald Trump brings to the table have been bad at assessing their own abilities and conditions. Uh, One example, Dwight Eisenhower had an incident when he was in office, a mild stroke it appeared to be, where he was having trouble communicating. He could barely even speak and get words out. And he was scheduled to have a state dinner that evening. And he tells his wife and others, basically, damn it, I'm going. You're not keeping me away from this. But he can't get those words out. And even he knows it sounds ridiculous, but he's getting more and more angry saying, of course I can do it. I'm the president. I have to serve. I have to do this. And eventually Mm -hmm. they let him know "You, you can't do this in this condition. But we've had many presidents who have had disabilities, some illnesses, uh, some other issues, but they're notoriously bad at recognizing it and stepping down and thinking, at least temporarily stepping down and thinking that they're not up to the job. That's just not in the DNA of most presidents. Well, short of invoking the 25th Amendment, which is not a temporary fix, it's pulling the power away from the president, who or what communicates to the president, tells the president that he is not to act as president and he is to cede powers. I mean, when the president goes for an operation, there is always uh, that contingency that the vice president is now the acting president. But what if it's not an operation? What if he's just gradually deteriorating, but still, you know, um, conscious enough to want to not give away control? Yeah. In the extreme case, there really only is the 25th Amendment. That is, if the president says, I am able to do this, and he clearly isn't, 
then it is up to the vice president, along with a majority of the cabinet, to say, no, you're not, and you will transfer power to us now by the very act that we're saying so. Uh, now, that is a temporary thing, actually. Yes, that does take the power away from the presidency, but it is only temporary until the president's condition improves or until the president appeals it and Congress essentially agrees with him. So it, it is not a permanent thing. That is actually why they designed the 25th Amendment, because vice presidents in the past who had disabled presidents, like Woodrow Wilson's vice president, were unwilling to even consider taking power away from the president because nothing in the Constitution said the president could get it back. Now, the 25th Amendment allows that, but you don't really need that. You don't have to go formalistic. If you can just get, let's say, the White House physician along with Melania and Ivanka and Jared to say, Mr. President, you just need to rest for a few days. You don't have to formally sign over powers to do that. As long as we can wake you up if you need to press the proverbial button or you need to sign one important paper, we can just go ahead and keep having cabinet meetings or letting the vice president do a thing or two. They don't have to make it a formal thing as long as the president still has the ultimate authority. Mm -hmm. Which is essentially what Woodrow Wilson's wife did. I mean, she just took over. Um, she didn't. She didn't call up the vice president, who quite honestly didn't want the job. He didn't want to be appearing to assert power. But in that, yeah, in that case, the wife stepped in and along with the doctor, Dr. Carrie Grayson, uh, Edith Wilson essentially was the president for many months. So what is the um, what is the phrase or what is the formal mechanism by which a vice president assumes power temporarily as when Ronald Reagan went under anesthesia for uh, polyp removal? Yeah, in that case, uh, the president, by Section 3 of the 25th Amendment, can declare himself unable for a period of time. And he sends a letter to the leaders of Congress saying, I am going to temporarily transfer power to the vice president for this period of time. So let's posit a scenario where the president is uh, violently ill and very sick and is going to be either undergoing some kind of procedure that would have him unconscious or otherwise anticipates, I will be unable to do it, you could imagine a letter, a template of which is always prepared in the White House, that could quickly be signed and sent to the leaders of Congress temporarily transferring power to the vice president. Um, and that is what worked in the scenario you mentioned, Ronald Reagan um, having surgery. Um, actually, I'm trying to remember how long that was, but there was a brief transfer of power uh, George W. Bush did the same. He transferred power to Dick Cheney, I believe, twice temporarily for a few hours and then took it back as soon as the anesthesia wore off. Um, if the president, however, declines in, in health so rapidly or so unexpectedly that he is unable to transfer power to the vice president, people often think about this as the stroke or the coma situation. In that case, it does rely on fourth section of the amendment, which would be the vice president with the majority of the cabinet declaring that the president is unable and informing Congress of the same. Is there a way to do this secretly, not publicly? No, um, it is notified to Congress. I suppose Congress could try to keep it a secret, but I see no advantage or political situation in which that would make sense. Uh, the way of doing it in secret is by not doing the 25th Amendment at all, and that puts you on the spectrum somewhere between insubordination and a coup. And depending mm -hmm. on how formal it is and how organized it is, 
We've already seen examples of the former in this and many other administrations where advisors simply don't do what the president orders them to do, or they take papers off his desk that they don't want him to sign. We've seen reports of that in this administration. But when it goes beyond that to, you know, let's not get the vice president to do it, or let's assume the vice president won't do it. So maybe me, the chief of staff, or maybe me, the physician, will just take power ourselves. Um, we have not seen that. And I think we should be grateful we haven't seen that because that's the kind of thing we see in a lot of other countries and it doesn't end well. I wanted to go back to a question I had about the uh, the cog, the continuity of governance. Are these plans executed, maintained outside the apparatus of the current executive branch? Is it more like whatever the flight path is for Marine One that, yeah, it might have the president on it, but it really has nothing to do, the execution of it has nothing to do with the president or people he's appointed? Or is it more like, I don't know, um, many other aspects of government where we would say this is just how government works and then Donald Trump comes in and you realize, oh, maybe it maybe it's government not working. Like so many other things, Mike, in the last few years, it's it's kind of both. The continuity of government and continuity of operations plans within the executive agencies and departments exist regardless of who the president is, and they can be taken off the shelf regardless of what party or person is in power. That said, ultimately, everyone in the executive branch reports to the president of the United States. And if the president were to say one day, which would be weird, but if the president were to say, I want everybody to take out your continuity of government plans and I want you to burn them, and I'm giving you a memo that will replace them in every way and in every detail, that's possible. And we can't say anything's impossible with with this president and the way he, he looks at norms and institutions. But that would be a very strange thing to do because that involves all kinds of facilities and details of what different bureaucracies do in certain situations. The ultimate continuity of government plan honestly, is in the Constitution. And and that's the election of the president, when the Electoral College meets, when the inauguration is, and that's the 25th Amendment and also impeachment and removal, all as ways of ensuring the continuity of constitutional government if the president needs to move on for one reason or another. None of those have to do with the nitty-gritty details of exactly what executives at what level of which departments in a doomsday scenario will be evacuated here or relocate here. That's more of what continuity of government planning is like. And I really don't see the president interfering in something like that. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about is this. When it is known to the world that the American leader is incapacitated, it weakens uh, America. It weakens our status. You would think, or under normal circumstances, or under all circumstances. And I'm pretty cynical, um, and I'm maybe, I am overly open to the argument. Actually, in this case, removing Donald Trump from the playing field doesn't do that. It would have benefits. But I don't know everything that you know. So just no matter who is the occupant of the Oval Office, if that person isn't there, what are the vulnerabilities that we might not even be thinking of, but maybe a hostile foreign adversary is? Uncertainty tends to be bad. Uncertainty in diplomacy, uncertainty in military affairs. If a foreign adversary or a foreign ally, much less the American public and the U.S. government, 
doesn't really know who the president is and who's going to make a decision, um, that tends to be bad because it's, it's hard to move things forward and it makes a lot of people nervous not knowing what big old USA is, is going to do. So in general, it's, it's bad to have an unclear situation and honestly, a lot of time and effort over hundreds of years now has been spent in the United States to make it a very orderly process when you have a change of rulers or a potential change of rulers. Um, the, the other side of that, of course, is that when you have a disabled president or uncertainty about who's calling the shots, sometimes shots just don't get called. And the concern is if shots don't get called, then important things that actually need to get done for the country don't get done. At the extreme case, that is nuclear launch. If, if there is an attack on the United States or the need for some reason to actually launch nuclear weapons, uh, the president is the ultimate command authority and has that. But we shouldn't just focus on that. It also has to do with certain declarations, certain kinds of emergency management that only the president is designated to do. So you want to have certainty about who is able to do those or else you get the nightmare scenario of competing orders where you actually get people trying to execute good government, but they don't know whether they're following a legal order or not. And that could just get messy. Mm-hmm. Can you confirm this? Because some people who I do trust on Twitter gave a credence, but there was a, a tweet by, I guess, a guy who monitors planes and he found an, an E6B Mercury, which is one of the nuclear deterrent planes, he said, having been scrambled a half hour before the announcement that the president got or had acquired COVID. And, you know, I've seen Harvard professor Julia Kayyem mm-hmm. uh, saying that that was true. Is it true? Is, is, is that a thing that happened? I don't know if that's true or not. I'll put it this way. I wouldn't be surprised if it did. And I wouldn't be yeah. surprised if it didn't, because the diagnosis of a, a contagious disease without any indication that it is lethal or near lethal at the time, there would be no need for that to happen at that moment. On the other hand, the whole point of continuity of government plans and of disaster planning is you want to act in an abundance of caution when you can, just in case things develop in an unexpected way that means you can't respond. In that case, deploying assets. Uh, Moving things around in a way that would be abnormal out of an abundance of caution is understandable when there is some uncertainty about what's happening. So in the Washington Post today, you are writing about the historical norms of disclosure and presidential health. And for a president who violates norms when it's in his favor, I guess you could argue that he doesn't have to violate this norm because the norm is not a heartening thing for (laughs) fans of uh, open information among the public. Presidents usually play a pretty close to the vest when they get sick, huh? Even presidents who have a uh, less cavalier relationship with the truth than this president have historically been inclined not to overshare information about their personal health crises. And in fact, that's an understatement. You've had people even who were paragons of honesty and forthrightness, like Grover Cleveland, who, when it came to a significant medical procedure, engaged in this elaborate deception operation to lie to the American people and even some people outside his his small circle within the executive branch. And when you have that history combined with the relationship of this administration to the truth, I mean, listen, we still don't know exactly what happened in that visit to Walter Reed uh, last November. 
Um, that was weird. It was sudden. It wasn't announced. And uh, the explanations put together don't all make sense. So in that environment, combined with the history of presidents getting away with not providing a lot of information, I'm not sure we're going to know as much as we need to know about the president's condition in the days going forward. Yes, Agreed. And let me also say, it's nice of you to say something nice about Grover Cleveland. He's historically underrated. He doesn't get enough credit. I mean, the, the man was not the worst president. Trust me, we've had some worse. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. I take that. David Priest is the chief operating officer of the Lawfare Institute. He is the author of such books as How to Get Rid of a President and The President's Book of Secrets about the president's daily brief. Thanks so much, David. Always a pleasure. And now the spiel. Look, I hope that everyone in America who has COVID-19 gets better. Everyone. But I also have a policy when it comes to obituaries, and it's that I think the most important thing is that they tell the truth. They should be a news story imbued with news values about people whose most recent newsworthy deed was that they passed away. An obituary isn't a eulogy. I'm not being macabre in presupposing the president will die by mentioning obituaries. I am just mentioning it to articulate the standard. The same standard should be applied to people who are sick. We wish them well, perhaps more than they ever wished us, but I say let's be better people than them. That said, I am not going to flinch from engaging in the analysis that a presidential illness confers upon us, and my analysis is not going to be sentimental. And if you don't believe me, let me tell you my topic sentence. We always knew that President Trump was a stupid liar, but his contracting COVID gives us insight into which of those was the more dominant shortcoming, the stupidity or the lies. I think there's some evidence that it was the stupidity. So by denying the severity of the disease again and again and again, and by not fully supporting the true means of mitigation, the mask perhaps helps. Yeah, that. And by injecting wild irresponsible cures, and I do mean injecting into the conversation and not clarifying those horrible misstatements and supporting with hashtags and outright endorsements, those who clearly enunciate a stance of anti-science and by promoting the ideas of anti-science and by promoting actual people within the government apparatus who are against science, Donald Trump deserves blame. He did wrong. But was it a knowing dishonesty? There's a lot of evidence that it has to be, right? He told Woodward that the disease was deadly back in February, right? He had to know. But look how he acted. Did he act like he knew the disease was really real? Look at the administration's actual policies and protocols. It wasn't really, we know one thing, but do the other. That would be hypocrisy or lying. It's more like not actually knowing, being really, really ignorant of what the right thing was or the true thing was or the actual thing was. When he mocked Joe Biden for excessive caution, it would seem that he really believed that that level of caution was unnecessary or else he would have taken that level of caution by traveling with an infected Hope Hicks, by meeting donors. Even though there was infection inside the tent, it shows real ignorance, which since it is explicable ignorance and since it was indeed a choice to be ignorant, at that point, we can call it stupidity. 
A perhaps underexamined example of this, how stupid the president was, relates to his heavy friend. Remember Trump's heavy friend? I had a friend who uh, went to a hospital the other day. He's a little older and he's heavy. And he, but he's a tough person. And he went to the hospital and a day later he's in a coma. I call, how's he doing? Sir, he's in a coma. He's unconscious. He's not doing well. The, the speed and the viciousness, especially if it gets the right person, it's horrible. Okay. So there was Trump not lying about how bad the virus could be. It was real to him in that it afflicted his friend, his older heavy friend, who Trump talked about a couple of times. But it hit him very hard. Uh, he's strong, a very strong kind of a guy. But he's older, he's heavier, and he's sort of central casting for what we're talking about. And it hit him very hard. Central casting, meaning... Trump was saying that his friend was in the exact bad demographic for this disease. And that demographic is older and heavier. Here was Trump talking about his friend, who was the New York real estate developer, Stanley Shira, after Shira did, in fact, succumb to the disease. He called me a couple of weeks ago, said he's tested positive. Stanley's in his uh, early to mid-80s, I guess. And Stanley went to the hospital and he never came out. So that was Trump's remembrance of his good friend, Stanley Shearer. And the lesson he took was that this is serious and deadly if you're in the right, which is to say the wrong categories, those categories being heavy and older. But the thing is, Trump is heavy. He is in the obese range, according to his BMI. And Stanley Shearer was not in his mid 80s. Stanley Shearer was 77 years old when he died. So the lesson Donald Trump took from an overweight man who he personally knew, a man in his mid-70s who died of the disease, was that a person in that particular category is quite susceptible. But Trump never mentally considered himself to be in that category because he didn't know the basic facts about his good friend, like his age range, but also because I think we have to say because Trump behaved rather stupidly. He was ignorant about the truth of the disease and his behavior was stupid. There are hundreds of thousands of Americans, mostly older Americans, who, like Stanley Shearer, never came out of the hospital through no fault of their own. There are some who were afflicted with coronavirus who were incautious and we could probably say their actions did play a role in their acquiring the virus. But there's really only one person in this entire country who could have actually done something about the virus that he caught, but didn't do it. And even to that individual, I say, get well. Because I hope Donald Trump gets his day of reckoning, not from a microscopic entity, but from the mass will of his countrymen who have had to bear the brunt of his stupidity. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produced The Gist. He picked a good day or week to be out of town. Margaret Kelly is a Gist producer, and she masks. Not perhaps masks. Masks, masks. We very much enjoyed the contribution of Jamila Bay this week. It was an exceedingly slow news week, so maybe next time something exciting will happen. 
Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Now, the order of secession of Slate Podcasts goes like this. If Gabriel Roth can't do the job and if June Thomas is just uninterested, we first try to wake up Chuck Grassley, see if he knows what a podcast is, and then the gig is Alicia's. The gist. I was trying to think of some historical analogies. Trump getting corona, that would be like Reagan getting HIV, or not even. That would be like Reagan getting shot by a Contra. Um, Umpro, depro, dupro, and thanks for listening.